G'day ladies and gents, welcome to Life of Mine. Maddie Michael here and I'm here on a regular basis to bring you some real life combos with a whole range of people. Now, the combos can be about mining, they can be about finance, science, current affairs or whatever's going to interest people and it is delivered in true Aussie spirit with a whole range of experts on the other end of the mic. So if you're looking for a good down-to-earth perspective on the exciting stuff within mining and life, then make sure you tune into Life of Mine each week, wherever you get your podcasts. Rightio, fun fact. Only 16 Australians have won a Nobel Prize in history. Eight of them were in the field of physiology or medicine. And I had the amazing privilege to interview one of them, Professor Peter Doherty. Now, if you want to know the ins and outs of COVID-19, the vaccine progress, the antiviral drugs, global pandemics in general, there is no better expert to listen to than Professor Doherty. Absolute highlight of my life to talk to this gentleman. He explains everything in such a great way that we can all understand it. Absolute champ. And thanks very much to Peter and his team for making this interview possible. So stoked. Anyway, let's just get into it. Copy your shift boss. Okay, radio check. Yeah, radio's working fine. Yeah, copy your personnel. Yeah, copy, mate. Yeah, stitch her up there. Thanks, mate. Yeah, right, eh? Copy that. Alright, we're, we're on it. We're underway. I'll try. Oh, th- this is going to be hard to keep this to less than two an hour on the dot of. Uh, <laughs> you're going to have to. You're going to have to ring a bell on me or something. It's all right. We'll we'll see how we go. If you can see me collapsing on the other end of the phone, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Too easy, mate. Yeah, you, have you got cabin fever yet? Uh, yeah, a bit. I mean, we all have, I guess. What about you? Oh no, I'm going alright. We just had a, we just had a new bub a few weeks ago, so I was, uh, I guess, I was in isolation anyway for that four weeks. That's right. But, so you're getting out for a walk or something? Yeah, no, we, we are doing that. We're, once they're all asleep, I've got I've timed this that they're both asleep. So I, I, that they might wake up before the hour ends anyway. So okay. we'll see. We'll see how we go. How the uh, oh geez, oh, I reckon it's a busy time in your life. What is take us through the? Oh, it'd be mixed emotions when you see a global pandemic come to the forefront in terms of. Geez, I'm going to be a busy man. Geez, this is dangerous. The Geez, this is my whole life's work ready to be uh ready to be unfolded here. What's what sort of mixed emotions did you get when COVID come to the forefront? Well, um it's I was uh you know, I'm seventy-nine years old and uh I'd sort of almost got to the point where I wasn't writing much about science and uh just staying in touch through younger younger colleagues. So uh when this hit uh, for a start, I didn't involve myself straight away. It was kind of a, uh, uh, it, it was looking dangerous from very early on. And I thought, you know, this is going to be serious. And then our institute was very heavily involved right from the beginning. And so I said I'd help out with um, uh, communications, talking to people, talking to people about the uh, pandemic and, uh, and basically trying to explain things because, I mean, kind of doing an explainer job on science for about 20, 22 years since the uh, Nobel Prize back in 1996. So I've been doing a lot of public communication. So I've, I've had a lot of experience with trying to talk generally to people about complicated scientific problems. So, so that's what I've been doing. I've been handling some of the communications 
uh, and uh, taking a bit of pressure off our people who are actually doing the, the real work uh, because they're getting quite tired and they don't have a lot of time. What's is your view, all the work you did on, you know, viruses and look, I'm not going to act like I know what I'm talking about because I do not. That's that's what I've got you here for today. But all the wor- early work you did on viruses and anything, your opinions and everything, has it would have it changed if you had gone through a one in 100 year pandemic during that time? Well, that really, um, you know, I've been working on viruses and immunity for more than 50 years, and I've worked on a number of different types of viruses, uh, big ones and small ones, and, and some more complicated than others. This is a new type of virus for me. I'd never worked on these coronaviruses. And in fact, there hasn't been an enormous amount of work on them before the SARS uh, pandemic epidemic in 2002. Uh, we didn't ever get SARS in Australia. It, it stayed up in uh, Asia. And, uh, um, and uh, I think some, uh, there was an outbreak also in Toronto, but it didn't come down as far as us. So it's not as infectious. But uh, I watched that closely and was very interested in what went on there. And now I'm just learning how tricky and complicated these viruses are. But it's not, it's not surprising that viruses are complicated because they, uh, they survive in nature pretty effectively and, uh, and we're part of their survival strategy or, or animals are part of their survival strategy. We're not normally part of the survival strategy for this virus because it's pretty, much, pretty certain it's normally a virus of bats has jumped across into us. But, um, but I'm not surprised it's complicated and uh, I wrote a book on pandemics back in 2013, Pandemics, What Everyone Needs to Know. Really very easy to read and you can find it uh, as an e-book in Australia. But um, I hadn't really thought through the type of thing we're going through now with the social isolation and the economic situation. That's something I hadn't thought about. I was just thinking about the infectious, and, uh, infectious disease itself and how we dealt with it and what it was doing. So. It's uh, it's been been a new experience for me. I'm learning a lot from it, and I'm going to write another book about it. Uh, I was from, about to ask, is there a next one? <laughs> my plague year, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's uh, I actually asked a, uh, I did a podcast yesterday with the old man who's a vet, and uh, all the questions I directed to him, he, he's like, "Well, I think you, it'd be best to ask a very well-renowned immunologist, uh, maybe on your next interview, because he did know your one was coming up." Because I did ask why, why bats? Why are bats always the common seem to be the common ground of where these viruses start? It's very recent, really, that we uh, we're looking at bats. It really only goes back to two thousand and two and SARS. Uh, before that, we um, we, we knew that bats transmit viruses called the Lyssa viruses, the rabies-like viruses. And occasionally someone would die in Australia from being bitten by a bat who was infected with, that was infected with one of these things. You know, bats are kind of dangerous. They also carry the Hendra virus and another virus like that's been circulating in Southeast Asia called Nipah virus. But until SARS came along, we really didn't realize how many viruses bats are carrying. And there's something about the bat immune system that's allowing a lot of viruses to be what we call persistent, that they infect the bat and then they hang around for a long time in the bat. So they're kind of a threat and it's surprising we haven't seen more of this before. But I think what's happened is that with so many more people on the planet, you know, we 
we our human population keeps growing pretty fast. And with rapid air travel, uh, these things can take off much more quickly. So we've had three of these events now. First one was SARS in 2002. We think it went from bats into a little animal called a civet cat and then into humans and then humans spread it because it was Chinese New Year and everyone was going home. So people who were infected got on trains and planes and went all over the place and it spread enormously. Now, SARS is um, not as infectious as this. It's not as transmissible, but it's still uh, transmitted a lot, caused a lot of problems in Singapore and other Asian countries. And it killed about uh, 10% of the people and infected. Now, uh, then another virus came along in 2012 called MERS. And we think that jumped from a bat into a camel in the Middle East. It's called Middle Eastern Respiratory Syncytial Virus. And it's much more lethal. It kills about 30% of people and infects, but it's not as infectious again. So it is still hanging around out there. And there, there have been cases in 2019. And now we get this one, which is much more infectious than the other two. It may have gone through a little animal called a pangolin and then into us, but we're not totally sure of that. And uh, it's very infectious. And it's, I think it's, we think it's probably killing about 1% to 1.5%, but we're not sure of that because uh, we're still, uh, it's very early days. We still don't know what the background infection rates are. Is it, is it pure luck or... Is there a bit of science behind it that we, in recent times, we haven't seen a pandemic that is both highly transmissible and a high mortality rate all at the all at the same times? It seems like we get one of one of either. Is it a possibility that one of those could come to the forefront one day? Well, this is the one, at least for old people. It's highly lethal for elderly people or for people who have a compromised immune system. As we get older, our immune systems don't work that well. So I'm definitely at risk because I'm in that older age group. But, um, but it generally hasn't been too bad in younger people. Some have died. Some have got very sick. Uh, I think I just was looking at the, uh, you know, there was a French aircraft carrier where just about everyone got infected. One of those sailors has died. So that'd be a young guy, presumably. But, um, but uh, we haven't seen a highly legal pandemic. But I'm, I'm not sure we'd see a pandemic with a virus that's enormously lethal because if a virus kills you too quickly, you don't transmit it. You know, what viruses oh, yeah. like is people being perfectly normal, walking around, coughing and spluttering over other people, but not dying from it. So they keep walking around, keep infecting more people because that's the way they survive, by transmitting. And so... Uh, so I don't, I've, I've never been too concerned about it's an enormously lethal severe pandemic. Um, and uh, the, the inf Spanish flu, which is the one we all look back to in 1918-19, which killed about 50 million people in a population, world population, about a third of that of today, it was killing, uh, I think, around 1% to 2%. It wasn't that it killed everybody by any means, but it was more serious because it was killing fit young people. That's kind of unusual for these viruses. Is I saw your article in the Australian yesterday with uh, it just showed all the pandemics back, like well, even before Spanish flu, like the bubonic plague, and you know it had the the virus size of the virus symbol on the paper represented how many people it killed. And yeah, where what's your gut feel of where we're sitting 
not just where COVID's sitting at the moment, but where it could possibly head if um, people start getting a bit complacent. Yeah, with it, wasn't, it wasn't my article in the Australian, but I was probably mentioned in it. But um, I think the uh, my gut feeling with COVID is that it's um, it's it's terrible this year because it's what we call a virgin soil pandemic. It's come into the human population and we have no previous immunity whatsoever. When we get an influenza pandemic, even if it's a new strain that's come in from outside uh, from other species, which is what happens with flu, it usually comes into us through pigs or maybe through birds, um, chickens particularly, not in Australia, but in, the, in, in Asia or somewhere. But um, uh, when we get influenza, we've already got some influenza immunity because we've been living with flu forever. And there's various types of immunity, and some of it's pretty cross-reactive. But this is quite new. My personal feeling about this one is this is probably the sort of event that's happened over the centuries and over the thousands of years. And if you look at, we've got a couple of common cold viruses that are related to this virus. And uh, I'd, I'd say, you know, that's probably how they came in. When they first came in, they probably killed a few people, and then they kind of settled down. So my, my uh, view of this is once we're through this, once we've had a lot of people infected or we have a vaccine or we have good drugs, the virus might hang around and might not. If it does hang around, I think it'll become uh, less of a problem with time. And, uh, and uh, if it does change, we'll easily be able to tweak a vaccine or whatever we made to deal with it. There are several ways of dealing with this, not just vaccines. Yeah, I'm sure we will. We will get into this now. You probably get sicker, sick of talking about it after all these years. Oh, never again. You might not, but I've got. I'm, I'm never going to probably have the privilege of having a Nobel Prize winner to speak to ever again in my life. I do have to. I just want to know a bit about that before we get into antivirals and anti vaccines. Can you just tell us a bit about the Nobel Prize in medicine you won? Well, the, the Nobel Prize is a long time back. That was back in 1996. And it was for work done in uh, between most of the, the important work was done in 1974-75. So it's more than, more than 45 years ago now. And that was about we discovered the basics of what you call cell-mediated immunity. We're working on things called we are studying a virus infection, a different one from this. And we're working on a cell called the killer T cell. This is one of the white blood cells. And its job in immunity is to go around and bump off cells that are damaged. It's kind of the hitman of the immune system. And basically, it, uh, in viral immunity, uh, viruses get into cells. They, they can't multiply by themselves like bacteria. Bacteria are cells themselves. But a virus has to get into a cell and then take over the machinery of the cell and multiply within the cell. And we've just, I've just been sitting on a seminar where uh, someone's been explaining a lot of this machinery, which I didn't know a whole lot about for this virus. And what we and so the, the the cell, our own cell, when it when this virus gets into our lung cell and multiplies, that our cell becomes a factory that's producing a new virus. So one of the jobs the immune system has to do is to bump off that factory so that it doesn't keep making new virus. And so that's what we discovered: the basis of this cellular immunity. It's about half the immune system, or half of what we call the adaptive immune system. And in this infection, its most likely role will be is that it helps us recover and eliminate the virus. But what happens is people get old 
is that they don't make these responses so well, especially for something new. Our, our immune system becomes what we call senescent, just as we become senescent. And so we don't deal with this as well with new infections. And so uh, I'd expect that may be part of the failure in this response is that part of the immune response is not working as well as it should. Wait, so all that work, the all your findings, all the work you did for that Nobel Prize, where, where did it all lead? What were the big things that came out of it, or spent, I guess, within the last couple of decades? Well, it, it told us about how half the immune system worked. There was an enormous amount of research went on after that, working out just how it recognises cells and all the rest of it. Also, our research for completely different reasons that I won't go into explain the nature of the transplantation system. But um, but enormous amount of work went in. So future uh, drug designs, vaccines and so forth took it into account. But these killer T cells that we studied are the cells that people wake up in cancers for these new cancer therapies, uh, um, melanoma treatments and stuff. And so you've heard that these uh, there is these wonder drugs for things like melanoma and so but what these things do is uh, these killer t-cells when they get into tumors can be turned off by something the tumor makes and what was discovered by a guy called jim allison really is um, how to turn them back on again so they knock off the tumor so these are the cells that are the basis of the new cancer therapies that uh, that we're hearing a lot about and you know, i think jared roughhead the footballer had melanoma and was saved by this and there's been a whole lot of people is there any of the work correlating to anything you're doing at the moment with um, COVID-19? Well, I'm no longer in the lab or running a research lab, but uh, one of my younger colleagues who started out in training with me uh, about um, uh, 18 years ago now, when I first came back to Australia, I've been living in the United States for a long time, came back to Australia to Melbourne. So she's now a professor at uh, our institute. And she's doing fantastic work on the human immune response to these viruses, looking at exactly those cell populations and other cells as well. So we'll rapidly, within months, I think, we'll have a pretty good understanding of the immune response to this virus. Uh, we may not understand why it's failing sometimes, but we'll have a much better understanding. Um, modern science is incredible. Uh, you know, when the influenza pandemic hit in 1918-19, they didn't even isolate the virus until 1933. It took 14 years before oh, the really? first influenza virus was actually identified. They knew it was a virus, they knew it was infection, they knew it was influenza, but we didn't know what the virus is until 1933. And now uh, we've just been talking about, uh, about the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, pandemic in 1981. It took, uh, it took three years to discover the virus, and then it took another year or so to get good tests for it. So now uh, we had a test for this virus. Uh, the, first, the first reports of the virus, I think we heard about, were in December. By the 25th of January, we had a specific test for it, and we'd grown it from a uh, guy who returned from China, behaved very responsibly, came back from China, realised he was sick, knew what he, it might be, so he, uh, he checked, called into the Monash Medical Centre. Uh, I think they, uh, they sent secure transport for him. We diagnosed it with our new test. We isolated the virus and were the first people to send the virus around the world. So the rate of modern medical science is extraordinary and incredible. And we'll get through this 
technically and scientifically much quicker than we've ever done before. But the problem is uh, with things like vaccines, we already have vaccine candidates in tests, which is extraordinary too, and with a lot of different technologies. Problem is we have to test very carefully for safety, and that takes time. You have to go through animals first, and then monkeys, macaque monkeys, to make sure it's safe. In, it's not only safe when you give the product, but safe when they get infected with the virus. And there have been a few concerns here about some candidate vaccines that were made years ago for SARS. So that's what takes the time. That's why people are saying 12 to 18 months for a vaccine. Could be quicker, though, uh, we hope. Because what are the... Everyone just wants it like a click of a finger. They think that the whole, the fact that the whole world's working on it is just going to pop up uh, so quickly. But what look, what are the consequences if it is rushed through too quick and it doesn't go through the proper testing for safety that you mentioned? Well, there's no possibility of that, actually, because at least not in any of the Western countries, because uh, we have very, very strict ethics rules uh, and everything that's done is done on ethics approval. So we couldn't do anything that went ahead of uh, ethics agencies approving it. Uh, it could be um, university ethics, CSIRO, uh, even the Department of Health has its own ethics committee. So nothing will go ahead until people are satisfied it's safe um, in monkeys. And so uh, that's, that will be the main test because then there's no real way you can test it beyond that apart from giving it to people. And so the vaccine itself doesn't cause anything. But if you're going to test it in the face of a virus challenge, it has to be kind of an experimental or what we call compassionate use vaccine. And uh, that uh, I, I should imagine we'll see some of these vaccines going into that testing at the latest, late, later this year, and maybe earlier than that. What is, like, uh, estimated timeline, like, just to give people an idea how, how it just can't pop up? Like, say you have got the vaccine good to go right now how long does it take to for to test through all the animals test through all the humans then to get the actual manufacturing and distribution to the, the rest of the public absolutely shortest timeline i've heard suggested is for a vaccine that's being made using the 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 virus that was used as a smallpox vaccine it's a big virus called vaccinia and there's a very mild form of that called MVA, modified vaccine or Ankara. Now that virus has been tested over and over in humans uh, with bits of the AIDS virus in it, for instance, to try and make an AIDS vaccine. There are also some other viruses like this have been used in the same way. So a lot of human safety testing has been done with this virus. But the problem is uh, uh, then the, the issue will be when we put the the, uh, the COVID, the, the coronavirus protein into it, uh, will it still be safe? So it'll still have to be tested, but a lot of stuff's been done and we know a lot about how to use it. So the monkey tests, uh, I, I'd imagine they'll get into them fairly quickly, quite frankly. And they're saying that they could possibly have something where they're starting to make a lot of vaccine by September. It's a British vaccine. And in fact, interestingly, it's actually been in, in test down at Geelong at our Australian Animal Health Lab uh, where they're testing it in ferrets uh, before they go into monkeys. So if everything goes well with that, if it doesn't look to cause any danger signals, uh, there'll be vaccine out there from that by the end of the year. Whether How easy it will be to get hold of it is another matter because you have mm -hmm. to have big production facilities growing it up 
you're making enormous numbers of doses. So that would be the very earliest. But, you know, I, I hope it works. Um, I've never been a great fan of this particular type of vaccine for various reasons, but we'll see. And uh, it, it may be quicker than we, 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 we've been saying, but, but conservatively, I'd say next year uh, at the earliest for most of the, the likelihood of uh, any of the newer vaccines we're trying. Do you think there's going to be a bit of a a bit of a global fight I saw on the news about who's going to own the vaccine? I heard Trump uh, talking about there's a big race for who's going to own it, and I guess, well, I guess that's going to profit to, out of it. Last <laughs> person to listen to is Trump. You know, listening to a narcissistic four-year-old doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, <laughs> uh, but uh, no, there'll be a lot of sharing across the planet. Everyone's sharing everything. Everyone's trying to get to a solution as fast as possible. So everything is being shared very, very quickly online with modern technology and stuff. So it's really an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary example of international collaboration and everyone will be pushing for a solution. The problem may come, though, when it comes to uh, producing a lot of the stuff because depending on what the product is, it may take an enormous amount of um, culture or, or vessels or something to produce it. We don't know what sort of vaccine it will be. But depending on what sort of vaccine it will be, the holdup may be in production uh, after we get through the safety testing. So some of the, some of the, in some cases, uh, people are aiming to push production ahead of final testing and, uh, and just hope that it turns out to be safe in humans. Because the only way you can really test a vaccine is to actually put it out there where the infection is happening. It's pretty obvious we can't take human beings, give them the vaccine, and inject them with the uh, the virus. I mean, it's just uh, just not on. We we can only do that with monkeys. It's kind of different from testing a drug, and uh, uh, in fact, a drug can often be much much easier to test. And we may get there quicker with drugs, actually. Yeah. Uh, when you're saying about what type of vaccine, how many different ways can a vaccine work? Like you got to, I suppose you got to sum well, up all, your, life, your no. life's work in a minute here, but. <laughs> Yeah, all vaccines work in the same way. I mean, basically, they make, you know, the, the outside of the virus, a virus is a bit of genetic material, a bit of RNA or DNA, nucleic acid, that's wrapped up in, in a coat of protein and, and, and fat, lipid. That's basically what viruses are. Some are more complicated than others. And there's a protein on the virus uh, that will stick on to another protein on our cells, which allows it to get into our cells. So... In this case, it sticks to a protein called ACE2. And um, so, and the, and the vaccine will likely be directed against that protein on the virus that sticks. So we, we call it the spike protein. Uh, and, um, and so uh, once you've made protein, uh, all vaccines work the same way. They just work like an infection does. And, but instead of being infected with the virus and stimulating a response to the virus, you're just stimulating a response to this bit of the virus. Uh, but if you've got it in another big virus, like, uh, like the, the MBA virus I mentioned, you're also making a response to that, which is one of the reasons you worry a bit about putting it in a big virus like that. You worry that it might detract from the response to the spike protein from the coronavirus. Now, there's a whole lot of other virus vectors of this type uh, there's adenoviruses and flaviviruses and all sorts of viruses that have been developed. So you can use them as what we call a platform 
you can just slaughter in a few genes from the thing you want to make a vaccine against. And then they, they make a response. So it, it, with all of those, it's like making a response to a mild form of infection, which is the way the measles vaccine and the mumps vaccine and a live polio vaccine all work. So then, but the other possibility is you actually make the proteins themselves. And that's the Queensland vaccine that's currently being trialled. It's actually been trialled in the Netherlands. It's, uh, it's a protein vaccine. Making a lot of proteins, a lot of work, and uh, that, that may, may take a lot of production uh, facility, but it might be a very good vaccine. Then the other way you can do it is what we call uh, nucleic acid vaccines. You can actually inject the genetic material of this virus that's been disabled in some way, or that where you're just in, injecting uh, part of it and, uh, and get the body to make the protein. And then, and then uh, that will develop the immune response. So, so it's it's uh, it's but but in every case, it goes along the same road as all immune responses go down. Is is it just a matter of which one gets tested and proved safe first? Like with all these viruses, um, vaccine developments happening simultaneously, is it whichever one r- arrives first? I'd, I'd expect we may see several out there. Uh, because I think, uh, particularly with older people, older people don't make good immune responses. They may not respond very well to the vaccine either. I suspect what we'll need is, is a prime and boost strategy. That is, I think uh, you, we will first be injecting one type of vaccine, and then I suspect we'll be coming back with a slightly different one uh, to stimulate those uh, that up again. So you, you'll you'll get it to a certain level, and then you'll boost it up. So I think we'll be doing prime and boost with this, and I wouldn't be surprised if we're not using several vaccines. And it's, it's quite possible that different countries will select different vaccine candidates, because if we do that and they're produced in different ways, we'd be using different um, uh, production resources, if you like, different factories to make them. So a nucleic acid vaccine actually would be probably something you can make very quickly, uh, the other other way you can also do is make an attenuated vaccine, you know, like the measles or mumps vaccines, the old style vaccines. So there's a whole lot of strategies. I expect we'll see several vaccines out there, but the first thing will be to determine if they're safe. Do you think it'll become part of your annual vaccine shots, like a flu shot eventually, or do you think it will, in the long term, do you think COVID-19 will actually be eradicated? I suspect it'll hang around and it'll become eventually like a common cold virus because um, vaccines don't want to kill us um, and they'd much rather be mild infections with us spreading a lot of infection. I wouldn't be surprised if it becomes just another common cold virus in time. But if it does hang around, I suspect there's a good chance it will. Uh, I think we'll have good drugs against it. And I think we'll also... uh, if, even if it changes a bit, no, it doesn't. They don't change that much. They do have mutations in them, but not changing key elements. It's it's what we call a high fidelity virus. Uh, and I suspect if it does hang around, even if it does change, uh, we'll be able to tweak the vaccine very quickly. So beyond this year, once we're through this initial phase uh, with a vaccine or with drugs or with better treatments, I think it's not going to be a matter of great concern, but it'll be hanging around. Now we've heard about like vaccines all over the news, but 
you've got you also hear about the antiviral and you you did mention before that uh actual medication drugs might be a, a solution as well what just give us an explain a brief explanation of difference between an anti a vaccine and an antiviral well the vaccine is you're stimulating individuals immune response and so once you've stimulated with a vaccine hopefully you've got an immune response that may actually last for life you know if you get vaccinated with measles as a kid you don't usually have to get vaccinated again unless you're going to a high endemic area or something so um so a vaccine causes us to make an immune response and and then we have that permanently a drug is just like anything else you give you inject an amount of stuff. Uh, a lot of it may just go straight out in the urine. Oh, and it has what's called a half-life. That means it, it'll be cleared, it'll be cleared from the body. Some things cleared very quickly, some things more slowly. So drugs you have to keep giving. So if, if for instance, we can get a good drug that, that knocks off the virus, and it have to be very, very specific to the virus because viruses are, multiply in our cells. We don't have broad spectrum antibiotics the way you do with bacteria because they can target all sorts of mechanisms in the bacterial cell, whereas the virus is growing in our cell. So, um, so once we have an antiviral drug, one possibility is uh, if we can use it early when people are first diagnosed, it may be enough. Uh, we may cure them. And, and, we, and if they're not dying, it'll, we'll treat it just like any other infection and uh, we'd be fine with it. So that would be one solution to this, is we get good enough drugs that we can actually treat people and they're okay. So if we can do that, fine. We don't need to go on with this whole, this whole restriction. Um, now, the other possibility with drugs is that you can use them as a preventive. If it's a drug that stops the virus growing, you can do what's called the equivalent of HIV PrEP, that is, you know, all people who've got HIV, the reason they don't get AIDS is they're being treated with a cocktail of about three or four drugs that, that keeps the virus under control. And with keeping the virus under control, you don't develop AIDS. Take those drugs away and they will quickly return into AIDS if, uh, if they're not there. So uh, you can, there is a thing called HIV PrEP. It's for people who are at high risk because of their behavior and they can take this pill every day uh, with a couple of these antiviral drugs that are normally used to keep the virus in check, but that will prevent them getting infected. So we could do the same with this. If, uh, if for instance, the vaccine doesn't work in old people, or we have trouble getting a vaccine, if we had a couple of antiviral drugs, uh, you need to take two so that it doesn't mutate away from and, and give you a resistance strain. If we had a couple of those, you could take those and you'd be protected. And so it's what's called prophylaxis. and uh, and it might mean taking a pill every day. But if you talk to someone who's in their 70s, they're probably taking four pills a day anyway. So another <laughs> probably one on a, on a good day. <laughs> as long as it's not toxic. And the thing about drugs is you can work through the toxicity stuff fairly quickly. Very well-established protocols and ways of doing that. And uh, drug industries have been doing it forever. So the, there'll be a whole mass of new drugs in development. I know of at least one or two, but there'll be masses of them across the world that are in development right now. But they'll have to go through the safety testing and so forth as well. But I think that's more straightforward, in fact, and maybe drugs will be the short-term solution. Are they? Does the effecti effectiveness of your antiviral drugs, does it change depending on how far the virus has 
progress through your body. Like say, for instance, if COVID nineteen's progressed in all the way to your lungs, do antiviral drugs still have effective in that in that sense? Uh, it's a good question. Um, that they may work just as well against the virus, but if you treat late, uh, what may have happened is you may have gone beyond the phase where having the virus there is important. Uh, because what can happen is you can set up the body to have a particular type of response. And we think in this case, it's the inflammatory response that may be killing people. Uh, not actually the virus, but it's the resp our response to the virus that's killing people late on. And it's, it's partly due to uh, partly due to the, the immune response not really handling it. And other aspects of immunity that are much less specific, being way over the top, trying to compensate. But um, it could be that if you treat too late, even though you get rid of the virus, that process is already inexorable. It's going ahead no matter what you do, unless you actually treat what's really causing it, uh, which might be uh, neutralizing what we call a cytokine. Um, some of these things that are produced normally early in the response to try and knock off the invader, but they don't usually do the job. You need the proper, what we call adaptive immune system, which is the type of system you simulate with the vaccines. Is that why you just hear a lot of these stories? Let's just use Boris Johnson as an example. He was seemed to be ticking along fine in isolation, then just took this rapid turn for the worst. He's in ICU and you just hear the stories about how this virus can just turn overnight. Yeah, we don't, we don't fully understand it yet. There's a lot of, uh, it's very early days, of course. We've only known about this virus for several months. And it's not like flu at that stage. Uh, flu, flu, you're kind of drowning in your own lung fluids, we think. But, but this one, it looks as though there's a problem with getting enough oxygen. And it may be due to what we call a cytokine storm as part of that. There's also micro blood clots. There's various things going on we don't understand fully. What happened with Boris Johnson is he did crash, and we don't really understand fully why people do crash. We think it might be due to virus persistence, but I don't think we're... We're, we're still quite clear on that. He did crash, he was feeling better, and then he crashed. This is quite common. And so if anyone gets this damn thing, uh, don't be overconfident, just take it easy for at least a month. And so he crashed and uh, they took him into ICU. They didn't ever put him in, uh, they didn't ever intubate him. That is, they didn't have to put a tube down his trachea uh, to help him breathe. But what they did is they had a nurse sitting by his side 24 hours a day uh, just feeding him extra oxygen when he needed it, and that brought him out of it. So he was uh, he was lucky. He's a bit younger, and I guess he's reasonably fit. He rides his bike everywhere, so uh, he was okay. Uh, the people who are at greatest risk of this, from what I'm hearing, uh, a lot of the people who are dying from this are, are morbidly obese. They're, they're massively overweight. What about the smokers? Yeah, I've heard a lot of things about even as well as even the high transmission of it being a smoker due to the receptors in your lungs. What about them? That's, you've basically got the story right. It seems that smoking um, causes those more of those receptors to be expressed. What we call upregulates the receptor, and that makes them more susceptible to the infection. So that's the story that's been out there. And so one of the words of advice right from the beginning was don't smoke. If you are a smoker, try and give it up. Probably the same is true of vaping. I don't know. I haven't heard anyone say anything about that. Uh, the other drug that seems to be a bit contraindicated is ibuprofen or any of what we call the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Um, again, I'm not really up to date on that, but I believe there's some issue there with them. 
I'm not sure what it is. Panadol is fine. Yep, yep. Oh, it's now under the antivirals. It's how many different ways can it, these antivirals work? As you said, there's uh, there's going to be so many different types of antivirals they, possibly they, available. What happens, say, with AIDS, is they use different. They use a number of several different antivirals that target different elements of the virus replication strategy. So they target different proteins within uh, within the virus, in fact. And so that's what you would expect for this. I mean, one type of antiviral would be to have one which blocks the receptor from binding to the cell. That's similar to the antiviral we use for influenza. Uh, it was developed, the first one was developed here uh, by Mark von Itstein in Melbourne. Uh, and that's and Relenza. But what it does uh, is when the virus infects the cell, it has to get away again. And, and to do that, it has an enzyme on its surface called neuraminidase, which allows it to escape. And so what the Relenza drug does is block that neuraminidase. So it's actually not stopping the virus getting in and multiplying, but it's stopping escaping from the cell so it can't affect other cells. So you, there's, 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 there, you can use antivirals that might target the spike protein that I talked about, there might be antivirals that would target some part of the virus growth cycle within the cell. And, and you can have a whole spectrum of different mechanisms. And so different people will be working on aspects like this to try and target those uh, different proteins. I, I imagine some of, some of this will also be repurposed from, uh, from other drugs. They may be, be looking at a drug that works on something a bit similar and try to change it. There is a drug called remdesivir out there. That uh, was an experimental Ebola drug that looks like it might be having some effect through one of these pathways. So that's currently in trial at the moment. That's, an, that's what you call repurposing an existing drug, which is a, what a lot of the current trials are about before we get the new drugs coming along. Is that, is that the one in Nebraska that they're testing? Is it remdesivir or something? Remdesivir, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yep. Um, well, based on all the work the Doherty Institute's doing and, and everyone else, which antivirals do you think are going to be the best candidates for sort of commercial production in the near future? Well, these the ones we're looking at at the moment are all things that are in commercial production. So I, I've really no idea. We're not a drug discovery um, institute. Uh, basically, we're doing a bit, of, we're helping a bit with testing them in, um, in, in against the virus. But that's about all we're doing, I think. Um, the person to talk to about this is Mark von Itstein at the um, Glycomics Institute in Queensland. He's a drug discovery guy, and he's got something interesting he thinks uh, uh, may well go ahead against COVID. So, um, but there'll be a lot of people across the planet doing this stuff, a lot of them in big pharmaceutical companies, uh, smaller companies, uh, more likely a company than a university-type activity on the whole. Uh, but the, the rational drug design people, these are the people who look at the three-dimensional structure of the protein that's determined, say, using the synchrotron down at Monash University. And then they actually design a drug, design a molecule to fit into that. Uh, they're, they're kind of, uh, I think they're sort of uh, the, the absolute computer nerds. So if you've got a kid who's a computer nerd, I tell them always, this is a career for you. You don't have to talk <laughs> to anyone. You can just stare at a computer screen all day and, <laughs> yeah, we've got one of them at home. I'll have to write all these names down, you're saying. I'm going to spam them with messages. You don't mind if I drop your name after this, do you? No, oh, well, I'll decide whether that's important or not. Yeah, <laughs> you may, that may or may not help you. You never know. It may have the opposite effect. 
<laughs> what um so I guess what's the Doherty Institute up to at the moment? Where where what aspects of this virus well, are the Doherty our Institute most heavily involved? In the beginning of this, we d- we developed the first testing uh, used in Victoria. At least I'm not sure about across the whole country. Uh, our job has been basically to get those tests out there, uh, to get more labs doing the tests, to make sure they're doing them properly. That was the first job. We were doing all the testing within our institute. And uh, now it's out there in a lot of the hospitals, a lot of the private pathology companies. Uh, we've got a tremendous capacity to test now, much, much greater than we had early on. Um, and then we're also testing, we're also uh, looking at different strategies for testing for the virus that aren't dependent on the same sort of technology. Because what we're worried about with this always is that with such a global demand, uh, we may not be able to get reagents. And the reagents are imported on the whole. So we're testing alternative tests. Uh, maybe not quite as sensitive, it's still pretty good. And the other thing is we're testing the antibody tests. And at the moment, though we've got good tests for antibody, they're cumbersome. They, people have to be bled and it's a cumbersome, time-consuming test. Uh, what we want is an antibody test that will work just on a blood ping pick from the finger. So, you know, you could drive up to a tent or something, uh, have your, your finger pricked or your thumb pricked, and then uh, go and sit aside for a while, and then within 15 minutes be told whether you're positive or not. So that would be looking for the footprints of the infection. After the immune response is over, the antibodies in the blood, after about 21 days after we first see symptoms, you can definitely find antibodies in the blood and, uh, and we'll be testing to see who has been infected. Um, that's, we need that information to tell us about background infection rates. And if we had a lot of infection, that would be the way, one of the ways out of it for people. If they could show they had antibody, uh, they, they could be freed from, from being locked up. But at the moment, we have so little infection that I don't think there are many people in Australia who have actually been infected with this thing. It sounds like a lot of time under the microscope for the Dowry. How many hours over your career? How many hours do you reckon you've had under the over the microscope? God, you'd, oh, you'd nearly get RSI leaning over, wouldn't you? I stopped doing looking down microscopes years ago. I mean, here's a microscope. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's for, I think it's for about 1890. Uh, but um, uh, no, I, I, had, I used to look down a microscope. I worked as a pathologist. That was early in my career. But what happens in a scientific career is, I mean, you do lab work early on, uh, but very quickly, if you're successful, you find yourself running a lab. So you're working with uh, traditional, typically now, a small lab will be about eight to 10 people. Younger people, technicians, grad students who are studying for their doctor of philosophy, which is kind of the science ticket, if you like, that's their, their trade <laughs> ticket. Um, postdocs, people who've got their PhD and are moving on and doing a bit more work in the lab before they start, try to start their own lab. So from usually now from, from about um, within about five or ten years of really starting in science, people are, if they're successful, they're running their own lab. Uh, they're not doing a whole lot of lab work. They're uh, doing a lot of time writing, talking, uh, getting grant money, uh, sitting on committees, uh, all this stuff. So I've been doing that for years. They threw me out of the lab years ago. Totally useless. Uh, any any 20-year-old kid can do lab work uh, five times as fast and more accurately than I can. <laughs> yeah, probably probably not a bad option, I reckon. What the Doherty Institute? How how did it actually come about? When did it? Uh, when did you start it? 
Well, I, I didn't start it. It was the brainchild of uh, of several people in Melbourne. Uh, Jim McCluskey, who was heading, who was Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research at the University of Melbourne, who was heading our department before he took on that job. Uh, Anne Kelso who was running the World Health Organization Influenza Collaborating Center. That's one of six worldwide. It's in our building now. It was across in North Melbourne. Um, then, uh, and Mike Catton, the guy who got the first um, uh, test going for COVID-19 and runs Vidral, the state virus diagnostic labs, which are in our building. And so our building is a totally new concept for Australia. It has the um, academic university microbiology immunology department where we do basic research and we train students and train people to be microbiologists and PhD students. But we also have all the, the state diagnostic labs, the virus diagnostic, bacterial diagnostic, that do the real practical work. We have the clinical doctors who are across in the hospital and do infectious disease and who have lab-based activities as well. We have what we are called physician investigators, people who do both science and, and medicine, and they're all in our building. So we bring all this together in a way that doesn't really happen in any other Australian institution. And uh, it's, it's uh, why we've been very prominent in this right from the beginning. So that, um, that idea, it goes back to before uh, the GFC, just before the GFC, I think, uh, because we got $80 million out of the Rudd government to start it going. And it was this discussion between Mike Catton, um, uh, um, uh, 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 Jim McCluskey, and uh, um, now I'm blocking on a name, but I mentioned it. Yeah, uh, um, uh, that, that really got things going. And we convinced the university. Glenn Davis, the university vice chancellor, uh, came to the party very quickly on and really backed it. So there's about $80 million of federal money, but it's about a $240 million building. Uh, and building a research institute like this is enormously expensive uh, because you have to have a special air handling and filtration. We can handle a virus as serious as Ebola, uh, people in spacesuits and all that sort of stuff. So it's a, you know, it's a top of the line institution. But um, it's been running a bit over five years now, I think, and it's really worked well. Everybody talks to each other. We get people who wouldn't normally see a lot of each other. Though they're all interested in infection, they don't really talk to each other much because they're in different kind of clubs, if you like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the clinical people don't normally talk as much to the really basic science labs people it might happen but that's all uh, put aside when you're in the same building and you're yeah, all yeah. tackling the same problem so at the moment we just have a fantastic uh, dynamic going well prior, prior to this isolation and lockdown did you were you getting in there much are you pretty frequently at the institute uh no i, I pretty much got to the point where i'd written six books latterly on science and the scientific life and all that stuff I thought I was kind of said what I wanted to say about science uh, for the general public, which is what I've been interested in latterly is trying to communicate about science. And so I thought I'd come to the end of that pretty much. And uh, I'd just written uh, my first non-science book, which is on empire, war and tennis. It's <laughs> going to be the definitive book on war and tennis because nobody's ever been dumb enough to write that book before. So, <laughs> But uh, it's, it's, it's basically okay, I think, my... My agent looked at it. She says, okay, and I can send it to a publisher. So I'm in a bit of my spare time. I'm cleaning it up. But now I've dropped everything and I'm, I'm working full time on this communication stuff and writing and, uh, and I'll do another book on this, actually. 
after doing it for so many years, just in, involved in, in virology, immunology, everything, like writing a book, like, is it is it a bit of a breath of fresh air to take a step away from science at whatever chance you can get? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I haven't been um, obsessed about science for some time now because uh, you're really obsessive when you're in the lab and you're doing that intense period or running a lab. And I haven't done that for a while now. I'm 79. I, you know, my really close contact with what was going on was pretty much over by the time I was 65, a bit more. So, uh, you know, I've been working along with it, helping write papers and all that sort of stuff, but doing a lot of other stuff. So, so yeah, I've, I've, and I've always had fairly broad interests in things. Um, you know, I, I do. I do bad carpentry, for instance. So, <laughs> <laughs> what's uh, as you said, you're seventy nine. You don't don't appear to be slowing down. What's what's left? You got another book? You said what's uh, what's on the agenda for the next decade? Well, I, I hope it's not Alzheimer's disease, but I've stopped worrying <laughs> about it. Um, uh, yeah, I'll, I, I'll probably keep, keep doing some writing and just keep active. But you've got to keep active. I mean, there's no there's no there's no stopping. For someone like me, at least, I've got to, I've got to keep my mind active and keep doing things, which is why I like. Uh, it's quite, it's a lot of fun actually to write a book about something completely different. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I now have an infinitely better understanding of Australia's place in World War Two and what happened and why. I didn't understand a lot of that at all, and even though I lived through it, you know, I was, uh, I was born in 1940, and I saw my uncle off to the war, and he never came back, and another uncle I saw off to the war as a baby. Uh, did come back. So the books that starts, it really built around them to begin with because they both played a lot of tennis, made their own tennis play, tennis court, and then went off to the war. But yeah. the book expanded way beyond their story. It's oh unbelievable. Now, before we before we finish, oh, the, the COVID-19, you call them myths, frequently asked questions, everything. I'm going I'm to hit, hit you with a few of them. And uh, the, I guess the stuff you see on the media – one one of them is kids. They're sending all the kids back to school. Mm. Everyone's, uh, I guess, you, you, up in arms about it, or half people are. I think there's a lot of a lot of parents that are probably bloody happy for it to send them back and get them out of their hair. But why is the virus transmission said to be lower in children? Um, well, we don't really know. Um, there's a, a neat um, quote from Bette Midler. You know, Bette Midler, the actress. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she yeah. said that. Um, with having the kids locked down uh, with COVID-19, a lot of parents are suddenly starting to realise that, that it's not the teachers that are the problem. Oh, I've got so much respect for teachers after this. Yeah, we'd, so, be, we'd be but, bloody um, useless. So basically, we, you know, a lot of the thinking initially was based on influenza. We know influenza is commonly brought into a household by a kid, and they're a big risk factor with influenza. But it doesn't look as though that's, uh, at least for young kids, that's an issue. Of course, when you're talking about high school children, you're talking about young adults. And so they, they would be as susceptible as any young adults. But, uh, but at the moment, we don't think of schools as being a particularly important focus for transmission. And I think the general thing is being, well, you know, at least keep it open for the kids who don't have anywhere else to go uh, because of social circumstances or because both parents are working in the healthcare uh, uh, front or, um, or, or and some some kids died, the family doesn't have enough money to have internet and so you know the, the schools need to be there for them so I, I think it's all being handled uh, pretty sensibly and 
um, basically, uh, I, I think it's a good possibility if we keep it as low as we've uh, as we kept it, we'll start to see a bit of uh, easing up within within a month or so. But we'll see. We'll see. It's what's really important now is everyone keeps up the social distancing, keeps doing the right thing, uh, so we don't get any nasty surprises. Now the soap, I've heard. The bit of reading I've done, it's not as just as simple as like soap as a just a general concept of hygiene. Soap is actually very important in killing the virus. Who would have thought? Can you explain why soap is so? Uh, it's important? because of the lipid in the coat, because of the fat. Uh, the soap really knocks it. So it's it, it seems to be pretty susceptible to soap. You can use alcohol as well, of course, but the soap seems to be doing doing a reasonable job. And you know, if you got to wash down wash down fruit and stuff but uh, uh, if you want to do that um, a bit of soapy water sort of thing it seems to be pretty good I mean the virus does survive on surfaces and you don't want it on your hands because a lot of infections including flu uh, a lot of the infection can be hand-to-face transmission and contact most of us don't realize how much we touch our hand to our face I I don't know about the infection I'm not even sure that if you actually actually ate this virus where whether it would it would infect you uh it, it, i think it needs to get in the respiratory tract but i'm not sure and i'm not oh, going to okay, do the ex- yep. i'm not going to do the experiment but yeah no uh, you wouldn't you'd have to you'd have to pay something yeah, so i mean it's um it, it could be that uh there's not it, it can survive for it, where it will survive is if for instance someone sneezes it or coughs it out and it's in mucus uh, you know the, the gunk you cough up where it would survive, say, on a surface is where it's in that, in droplets, in mucus, which is why, you know, when SARS happened originally, they were cleaning all the elevator buttons, for instance, uh, for the same sort of reason. It can survive uh, on uh, steel surfaces for several days, for instance. And what, what about mutation? Has the virus mutated already? Like, is there a potential for, for it to mutate, do you think? There's lots of little mutations in the genes. Um, they're not changing. Uh, they're not the sort of mutations we see with flu that will change its specificity or its uh, or, or ch- take it away from being neutralised by antibodies. Uh, we don't think there's been anything uh, to do with virulence. If it does mutate with respect to virulence, I'd expect it to mutate to lower virulence and, rather than higher. You can track the lineages of the virus through the mutations, but it, this is common with lots of viruses. It has what's called a proofreading mechanism. Influenza and the small viruses of this type uh, don't have a proofreading mechanism. HIV is the same. So they throw off a lot of mutants all the time. This one doesn't, at least not mutants that mean very much as far as we know. Oh, that's, that's good to hear. How long, have you, how long have you been locked up for now? Professor in isolation. It must be, what day it must be about a, how long is it we've been locked up? Is it about a month? I don't know. I haven't yeah, been I don't know. I'm not sure. Because yeah. where, where are you based? You're in um, I'm in Parkville, right in the city next to the uh, university and oh, in, okay. in Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah. So you got a lot more. I'm in Perth. So you got a lot more stricter uh, restrictions than us, which is. Uh, well, I think you've had a lot less um, a lot less infection than we have in Perth. I think it's been much lower, hasn't it? Um, You've had passengers off the cruise ships. You know, most Australian cases are still off the cruise ships or the planes. They're not local. And, uh, and so, you know, we haven't had that much community transmission. That's where we were lucky, I think, is, uh, is while it was running for a long time in Europe and North America before they got onto it, we got onto it straight away. 
Yeah, no, nah, it's good to hear. When oh, the I've got to tell the Queen to pull a finger out. How how after reading your biography and everything and everything you've done, when when's she gonna knight you? When's the sir coming in front? I can't we don't believe do, we don't do that anymore in Australia. We don't knight people. Only Tony Abbott knighted a couple of people, but now it's been abolished. Uh, oh, no, we stopped, really? we stopped doing that. Uh, we stopped knighting people back in Gough Whitlam's time. Uh, so anyone who's got an who's, who's a sir that's around is probably someone who's come back from Britain or something, unless they're yeah. pretty old. I mean, you know, all the all the people who are knighted in Australia now would be in their eighties, I think. Um, oh, they're older than me. Yeah, I, yeah. And, and I don't I don't particularly want to be sir or whatever. I mean, that's a lot of crap. <laughs> <laughs> There's enough crap in the world without that, you know. Because <laughs> I, you know, I notice when I go, whenever I go onto a plane, because I obviously get referred to as uh, addressed as Mister, and then the doctors get re- addressed as doctors. I always want to know when you're a professor, is professor the salutation or whatever it is for when you walk onto a plane, or do you just put Mister Peardody or Doctor Peardody? Well, I've been called, uh, you know, that's it's a designation that's been used. So sometimes someone has recognised me. But you know they address you by what's on your plane ticket. Yeah, what what goes so on your unless plane you put ticket. it on the plane ticket, they don't. So we never put I never put professor on the plane ticket if I'm flying to the United States because the Americans want to know why your first name on your passport isn't professor. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, they don't they don't use the title professor. We use it here. I think I'm not very interested in titles actually. I, everyone calls me by my first name pretty much. So. Uh, but it's kind of a thing, you know, sometimes people want to sort of present you as being some sort of authority, so they use those terms, but I think it's more a turn-off for most people than anything else, quite frankly. Especially, and they'll be looking to looking for you if something goes wrong on the plane. If they know they've got the professor up in business class, they'll be coming to, yeah, coming but to get could you be when someone falls of, over. Uh, it could be a professor of uh, sociology. I mean, you wouldn't want to be treated... Uh, or in my background, really, I started way back as a vet, so you wouldn't want to be treated by a vet either. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's why you don't put doctor on. Um, <laughs> but uh, the professor, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not particularly fond of the title. Hey, uh, I guess because you did start with vet vet science. When did you when did you go from animals to humans? Or is it? I, I, I did veterinary research on infectious diseases for about ten years. I was always a researcher. Did that for about ten years, and then. We made this big basic science discovery while I was working in the John Curtin School of Medical Research in Canberra. I was supposed to go and work for CSIRO, but I, I took an aside. I'd been, I was coming back from Britain. We'd been working in Britain. Took an aside and went there to learn some new techniques and some new science. And we made a big discovery. So for the rest of my life, I've been in basic medical research. Never got back to the vet world. And uh, a good bunch of people, the vets, actually. Yeah, no, very much so. They they uh, they fed me for all my life. The old man's a vet, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, I, I know we, we've hit the hour, and you said you were going to hang up at about an yeah, hour. Yeah, probably enough for me. I think that that's that's okay for you. That's fantastic, mate. Look, I know it's probably just a, another ordinary day for you, but this is dead set. One of the greatest days of my life, having the privilege to talk to you. And um, look, thanks very much for giving me the time. I re- really appreciate it. I know you're well, a busy man. Well, take care, and I hope, I hope we're through the worst of this, but we'll see. We'll see. So take yeah. care. Okay. Nah, yeah. Thanks very Bye. much, Professor. Cheers, Bye. mate. What an absolute honour. Thanks very much, Professor, to all your team for making that possible. I had an absolute ball, and I hope everyone got a lot out of that. 
There's a lot of good info there, and let's hope this vaccine and antivirals come to the forefront as soon as possible. Righto. Stay safe out there, everyone. Wash your hands. Hooray. Right.